We're going to continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And I want to start by bringing to your attention a fairly well-known adage or expression in business and in finance and in just everyday life. And that is, there, there is no such thing as a free lunch. You guys have heard it, you guys have said it, there's no such thing as a free lunch. A free lunch. Now, in economics, that goes, you know, there's, there's, a, there's philosophy, economic philosophy behind that, meaning that even a free lunch costs somebody something somewhere. But usually, that expression is used in a business sense or an interpersonal relational sense, meaning, no, they got an angle. Nobody's going to give me anything for free without wanting something from me. And so we say, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You really want something from me in return. And usually that's the case. Usually something given is ultimately given for some personal gain. This happens all through the spectrum, all throughout our, our, our day and our week. Um, a very basic level. Uh, we'll go to the grocery store this afternoon and we will um, get some waffles for my children because we're out of waffles, which is like chaos at the Poindexter house when it starts out with no waffles. And, and I'm going to go and I'm going to take some chocolate chip waffles and I'm going to give them some money so that I get some chocolate chip waffles. Okay, Just basic you know, principle of living life. You give money to get a product. I want something to gain my personal gain. I give something to get that personal gain. Now, this happens on a little more subtle but obvious level in, in business dealings. I would assume last Thursday at the, at the Indians day game, there were some loges filled uh, from companies that, that have salesmen who go to their clients and say, you know, we value your business so we want to just bless you, even though I'm sure that's not the language, with a day game at the Indians. It's the only way you'll go to see the Indians anyway when it's free and all you can eat at a loge. Uh, but there's this unspoken understanding that it's kind of, you know, you scratch your back, I'll scratch mine, I'll give you these things with the understanding that we'll continue on in this business relationship. Nothing wrong with that. It's just a fairly common, understood practice in business. Now, this also happens in relationships. Um, you notice somebody, you're single, hopefully, and you notice somebody that you are attracted to, and you want them to be attracted to you. So you go out of your way to try to do nice things for this person, say nice things, maybe a little gift or, you know, whatever. And ultimately, you don't want any financial gain out of it. You just want that person to be attracted to you. So you're doing nice things, you're saying nice things, ultimately for personal gain. Now there's a much darker side to this kind of a thing as well. You think about the person who tries to lure a child into the car with a piece of candy or something like that. That's the, the, the dark side of using a gift for some kind of a twisted personal gain. But it happens on all different levels, all through life, and it's just a part of life. We give something in order to get something for ourselves, materially or in this earthly world. Well, Jesus has some things to say about this, and, and, and I think what we're going to find is for Jesus, there have to be some boundaries. 
Because some people truly believe there's no such thing as a free lunch. Nobody is going to do anything that doesn't somehow benefit themselves. And I think that's an extreme that Jesus speaks against. Jesus wants us to have these boundaries in our lives and to do some things just because it's what it means to follow Jesus and live a life of God. So I'm going to read Matthew 6, which is where we'll start our teaching today. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 6. If you forgot your Bibles, I see Bill Florick. I can make uh, Bill Florick in the back, and he has volunteered to hand a Bible to you if, if, you don't, if you forgot one or if you don't have one. So you can just raise your hand, and Bill will get you a Bible from the back. And if you don't have a Bible, actually... Um, you can just keep one of, one of ours. So um, grab that from Bill if you need one. Matthew chapter 6. Give you a couple seconds to turn there. I'm already there. Jesus says this. It's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness. Actual word there is almsgiving. Before men. To be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they will have their reward in full. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. I want to do three things today. I want to walk through that passage, and then I want to talk about what we can learn from God or about God from this passage, and then how we can apply it to our life. So let me start by, by walking through the passage. What's happening here is Jesus is, is making a turn in his sermon on the mount. He started out, if you remember, uh, with what is co- commonly called the Beatitudes. And, and these are, are Jesus' introductory statements that include his whole crowd. He paints the picture of a spiritual spectrum. He says, if you are spiritually bankrupt, you've never done anything to please God. You're far from God. You have nothing going for you spiritually. The kingdom of God is yours. And then he kind of goes through the spectrum all the way up to if you are persecuted for your faith, you're blessed. So he tells all of his crowd, which is a mishmash of humanity, no matter where you are, you are blessed because God's kingdom is available to you. So he includes everybody. Then he makes a move toward talking about the law or the Old Testament because much of Jewish life was trying to interpret the Old Testament and then follow through with those interpretations. And Jesus says, I want you to know that I am bringing fulfillment. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to give you a better understanding than your current teachers. And by the way, if you want to get this right, your righteousness is going to have to exceed the religious leaders of your day. And then he takes some time to talk about a couple of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery. And show him exactly what he means by the fact that his teachings go above and beyond the normal teachings of his day. And now he's going to make a move in Matthew chapter 6 
to talking about the three key pillars of Jewish life. Three spiritual disciplines that Jews did on a daily basis. Almsgiving or doing what is good for people. Now by Jesus' day and time, almsgiving came to mean generosity. You were doing something good for the benefit of someone in need. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Next week we're going to talk about prayer and fasting. This week we're going to talk about almsgiving. So Jesus is, is, is very directly taking on the three activities that every Jew engaged in on a daily basis very intentionally. When he talks about almsgiving or doing good deeds, in verse 2, one of the first things that he does is he comes against the religious leaders of the day for the second time in his sermon thus far, trying to link them with hypocrisy. He wants the people to stop looking at the way the religious leaders are living as an example and paint a better picture of following God. And by referring to the synagogues and talking about these people who give these amazing gifts at the synagogue and make sure that everybody can see, he is labeling the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Everyone there in Jewish life would have known exactly what he's talking about, and he's calling them hypocrites. But he's also doing something else here, because the Greeks and the Romans that were in his crowd... And the Bible said that he traveled through Roman provinces and, and, and cities with Greek influence before the sermon. And, and people who were, who were pagans, who were not Jews, uh, Gentiles, followed him because of his miracles. So he's got all kinds of religious backgrounds in his crowd that day. And the Romans and the Greeks would have been stunned by a statement like, when you do good things for other people. That would be like me saying to you today, oh... And when you eat tree bark, because you probably don't eat a lot of tree bark, in, Rome, in, in Roman and Greek culture, you just did not do good things for people that didn't benefit you. You didn't do charity or philanthropy. You would give to a cause to bring recognition to yourself or to somehow manipulate that cause through your patronage. So he's, he's kind of given this head-scratcher to some of the people in his crowd as well just by suggesting that you would give something to someone in need. He does something else that's, that's fairly interesting in verse 2 and 3, and he talks about this idea of the reward. He says that when you give to be seen by man, you'll have your reward in full. Now, I think there's, there's something that we can kind of assume through this. There are two systems at work here. One is just implementing a strategy for personal gain that might work or might not work. And I think one of the things that Jesus is kind of saying here is when you do things for personal gain, you'll get personal gain. That's your reward. It stops there. God's not necessarily in that. But then there are greater things that you can do for eternal gain in your relationship with God, and you need to have a focus there. And I say that because what I don't want you to leave here today thinking is that like everything you do has to somehow be done to benefit other people and not yourself. 
You can do things that benefit yourself and your family. Scripture's full of this. Proverbs are full of this. The Jewish people are very business savvy people. Maybe you've heard that. And, and, and that, I mean, that's right through Scripture. You see this idea that wisdom and strategy leads to personal gain, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. Now, the Pharisees had taken it to another level because they were being hypocrites. They were pretending to do something for God when it was really about them. That's a big problem. But generally speaking, you can make good decisions And the wisdom of the strategic thinking will gain you things. So if I want to make some money for a trip to Disney World and I have a few good ideas for articles, I may write an article for a Christian magazine just to make money. And I think what Jesus would say is if that's your goal and you write it good enough, you have your reward in full. You used your strategy, it paid off. But there's nothing necessarily in it from God when I'm just trying to get something for myself. So don't leave here when we talk through this and think, oh man, now I have to reevaluate everything in life. I can't do anything to benefit myself or my family. That's not Jesus' point here. But I think Jesus' greater point is that when we're doing something good for somebody else on behalf of God, we become a representative of God. And that's when things start to matter a big deal with motives. That's when we need to have our motives right. And Jesus' strategy for our gut check through our motives is do things secretly. If you're wondering why you're doing something, do it anonymously where you can't get any credit. Because even if you don't get any credit, you're getting credit from God and that makes an eternal difference. Now, not all things should be done in secret. Jesus had just said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your good good deeds shine before men that they may see them and glorify God. So sometimes you may need to do some good things and let people see you doing them so that they can link your action with a loving God. But if you're concerned about making that link, like if you can't say, hey, I want to pay your rent because I know that that God wants me to do this because he wants me to show you his love and here's the difference that God has, has made in my life. You know, if you're uncomfortable about making the connection there and bringing the credit to God instead of yourself, then do it anonymously. Then you don't have to worry about your motives getting in the way. As a church called to be generous, I think this, is, this, this, this idea of, of motives is something that's important for us. I had someone ask me just the other day, do you think your church loves people on the margins of society or are they just trying to be generous to benefit themselves and the cause of Polaris? Now, I think that is a fair question and one that we all have to wrestle with internally. And corporately as a church, are we in this for Polaris or are we in this for God and for our love of people? Because those are the proper motives in Scripture. Love for God, love for people, desire to follow Jesus. That's why we do what we do. 
And it's very important that we continually examine our motives. If you look at, if you look at Isaiah 58, and this is a passage that, that we are currently building Polaris around. I hope 2010 is like the year of Isaiah 58, the year that Isaiah 58 hit Polaris. If you turn there in your Bibles, it's in the Old Testament. And this idea of motives, the thing behind the thing, is present all through Scripture. Isaiah 58 says this. The Jewish people are saying, We have fasted. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Then God says, Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit your workers. You don't care about people. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen, only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it a day for bowing one's head like a reed, for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of yoke of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry? To provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Take care of your family. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And you will call and I will answer. You will cry for help and I will say, here I am. What was happening there is the, the Jews were frustrated because they felt like God wasn't hearing them, yet they were fasting. They were going without food. They were, they were laying around in sackcloth and ashes as, as a visible sign to God that they were sorry for their actions. But their hearts weren't lined up with that. God says those kinds of things are worthless. Feed the poor. Show me that you love people. But then it's interesting that Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 says... You do good things for the poor. Doesn't count. So, so what God is saying is, right things aren't always right. You can surround yourself with religiosity, but there's no God present. And I've seen this. Absolutely surrounded with religion and churchiness but no God present. Wes Stafford in his book, Too Small to Ignore, talks about his, 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 um, his Christian school background when he was a child. It, it is just one of the most horrific sections of a book that I've ever read. There were missionaries in his particular denomination that were all over the world. And during the school year, those missionaries would, would come together at this school where they would live while their families returned to the mission field. So the workers at this mission school, this Christian missionary school, were essentially these children's parents. And Wes paints the picture of all kind of physical, mental, emotional, verbal, and sexual abuse that happened to these children 
at this Christian school with pictures of Jesus all over the place, with Bibles and scripture memorization all over the place, with prayers before meals and singing songs about God and his love every day. Religiosity everywhere. God far, far away. And this kind of of thing happens often because it's about the heart, not about the outward expression. Now, what I don't want is for you to be exasperated by this. I mean, we could take take the path of, well, then what does God want? I do this, it's not right. I do that, it's not right. What does he want? He tells me to do this, I do it, now he's not happy with that. How, How do I win? What do I do? I hope it doesn't strike you like that, that God cares about your motives. When I listen to my grandparents talk about their childhood, and and many from that generation uh, talk about childhood or the childhood that their parents knew. There is this, this is true of my grandparents, okay? I don't know anyone else, okay? There There is this kind of cold rigidity. Wash your hands, clean clothes, clean room, no running, no laughing, no talking, silent, seen, not heard, chores done, or you go to bed without dinner, or get a savage whooping. And, and there, there's just this kind of, of rhythm to life where, where you, you, you have these rules and, and these things that you had, these deliverables, and, and, and when you do them, you're rewarded with dinner, and when you don't, you're punished. Now, there's a good part of that. You know exactly what's expected of you. I know exactly what I have to do, and I know that if I do it, I get dinner, and I avoid a beating. And if I don't do it, I get a beating. And it doesn't matter whether I do it to please my parents or whether I do it, you know, because I don't want to get spanked. I know that if I do it, this is going to happen. Predictable cause and effect, and I know how to do that. But there is a kind of coldness to that. And I hope what you can see is that God's desire for your motives is not another hoop to jump through. It's the sign of a highly relational God who loves you and cares about why you're doing what you're doing. He doesn't want just a list of rules for you, a list of hoops for you to jump through. That's not the idea of relationship to this highly relational God. He cares. So our, our 11th anniversary is coming up, me and my wife Kelly. And, and let's say on July 16th. Now we don't, a little bit of background here of gift giving. We don't do anniversary gifts. We do cards. That's what we do. We just we do cards. And there's, there's an expectation that you're going to get a card. I'm going to get a card for Kelly. I'm going to have a card for Kelly. But I want to get a card for Kelly on her anniversary, so that's no big deal. So I, I know that I need to do a card for Kelly on her anniversary. So July 16th, let's just say it before our, the night before our 11th anniversary, this July 16th, 2010, I'm in line with Kelly at the Circle K gas station to pay for our gas. <coughs> you know where I'm going with this. And there by the cash register are some random greeting cards, a little display of random greeting cards. And while she's standing there with me, deliverable, i got to get this woman a card because it's our anniversary. And I thumb through, and I find the anniversary card, and I pay for it. 
And then with the pen that I used to sign the receipt, with Kelly standing there, A-L-E-X, bottom of the card, fold it, hand it to her, good to go, right? I just delivered on the thing. Now my guess is, relationally speaking, that is going to hurt her if I were to really do that. Like, here you go, here is my deliverable, I'm supposed to do this, I did it. And it's not that Kelly wants me to jump through hoops. It's that she wants to know that I am invested in the relationship. And when I look at Scripture and I see God call into question our motives, it's not because He's trying to exasperate us or He's some you know, slave driver, taskmaster, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Because there's a psychological game called crazy-making. It's a well-known psychological game, and by game I'm talking about manipulation. That's a bad word in psychology. It's called crazy-making, and it goes something like this. I see you took out the trash. Yeah, I, I, I took out the trash. I you know, wanted to, wanted, what, what am I, lazy? No, I, I just thought that it would be a nice thing to do what? I don't do nice things. You know, there's that kind of thing that you see a very dysfunctional um, couple do, where and it's called crazy-making. It's like, I can't win. How do I win? And I don't see this when I look in Scripture from God. I see a God who wants a relationship with us, and He knows how easy it is for us to slide into the motions. And there's nothing relational or loving about buying an anniversary card from a gas station. Unless you did that for your wife, then that's your thing. <laughs> I want to read um, 1 Corinthians 13, 3 for you. <coughs> How many of you had 1 Corinthians 13 at your wedding? Read at your wedding? Wow. You guys don't know whether you did or not, because more of you did than that. <laughs> I got like, like, the men are like, I don't know, did we? I got to wait to see if her hand goes up. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul's point here is we can do a lot of the right things. But what matters to God is a loving heart. That's what matters to God because God is highly relational. All right, I want to quickly spend uh, just a couple of minutes walking through now some application from this because what I'd like for you guys to do, uh, to do some gut checks here. I want you to think through Am I off a little bit on my motives? And, and I have a list of what I see as some common false motives in myself and what I've seen uh, in, in some other people and, and what I see in Scripture. And, and, and it's important that we do the gut check here because you know Jesus could have said this to the Pharisees and they wouldn't have gotten it. Sometimes our pride gets in the way from us to owning up to some false motives. So take a look at some of these and we'll see if they fit. 
one of the things that I see sometimes and that I see this in myself and have really struggled with is, is the false self-gain motive of promotion. I've told you that I feel like a lot of what I've done for the first 10 years in ministry has ultimately been to promote my church, to promote Polaris, my organization of choice. And so I go and I do some good things ultimately with the hope that Polaris gets the credit. Or I would lead you to do things as a group, ultimately with the hope that Polaris gets the credit. I have trained people to do this. I have done it myself. And I want to be done with that. I don't want to do things anymore, ultimately for Polaris to get the credit. I want to showcase the way of life taught by Jesus and for him to get the credit. I saw this the other day. We were at, we were at Camp Cheerful um, cleaning up the stables. I have, I've dealt with a lot of horse crap in ministry, but never the real stuff. Um, and, and there was a, a, a guy there from our small group who had invited his nephews. And they came, and that was their first uh, real exposure, um, I think, listening to him to... to a life lived, a faith lived out. And he didn't say, hey, come take a look at Polaris. He essentially said, this is me practicing my faith. Do you want to be a part of it? He's showcasing his faith so that Jesus gets the credit and not the organization. And that's why, you know, I mean, we have trained people to promote Polaris. And, and sometimes when people leave, they, they, they promote their next church and they try to get their friends who are already going to a church to the next church because that's just what we've always done. We've always just promoted the church. And there are benefits to letting people know where you worship. I'm not saying that. But I hope in my heart of hearts, in the deepest places, I am done doing things just to promote my organization. It's to promote Jesus from now on. Feel more spiritual. Sometimes there is this thing, this self-gain thing that comes into play with the good things that we want to do. And, and that is that we want to feel more spiritual about ourselves. This was the case with the Pharisees. They did everything for looks. They did everything to feel superior. They gave more than anybody else. They would have had the whole Old Testament memorized they knew more Bible than anybody else. They gave more money than anybody else. Jesus called them a son of hell. That's how far off they were. So don't think that whoever wins in Bible trivia is the most spiritual. Or whose giving statement at the end of the year shows the most money is the most spiritual. It's not about those outward expressions apart from the heart. And sometimes when we do those things, it can make us feel better about ourselves spiritually. And I think we need to be very careful that we don't fall into the trap of just doing those things just to feel good about ourselves. Sometimes we do good things for leverage. Sometimes we do it out of dutiful obedience. And i got to tell you that this is important in worship, like singing. I mean, I'm not very good at singing in worship. And sometimes I feel like I'm just going through the motions and God doesn't even want my half-hearted worship. Sometimes we do things out of a need to be needed, but I want to spend the just a few minutes talking about this last one. Sometimes we do good things to earn rightness with God, to earn a place in heaven. 
I heard of a conversation just this past week of someone told me that they were talking with their coworker about, you know, different expressions of faith and one looked over at the other three and just said, you know what, it's not about who does, it, it's not about where you worship or what you worship. You just be a good person and you'll get to heaven. <clears throat> now there's partly, part of this is a correct view. Isaiah says, our sins have separated us from God. So there's a part of that that realizes that the bad things in life separate us from God and we have to do something to gain ground or I should say something needs to be done to make up for that separation. But some of you might think that by doing good things, you know, you examine your life to see whether there are enough good things and good thinking and that is going to correct your relationship with God. And you are absolutely entitled to your opinion. Just realize that that is not a biblical opinion. The Bible runs counter to that opinion. The Bible says that we are separated from God, and apart from bloodshed, there is no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus was the only one who came for you to pay for your sin with his blood. And through that sacrifice, everything that separates you from God is forgiven through faith in that sacrifice. So you can do and do and do and do and do. And you will have no gain from that whatsoever spiritually. Because the only thing that can make up for your separation from God is faith in Christ. Now that's good news. Because now that frees us up to put our trust in the one who's done the work for us and then we can live a life not having to worry about that. We can just serve him out of joy and we don't need any self-gain from that because God has done all the work.